0: Okay, I think we should get started, although there was uh, hope that there was still still a group of people coming, but uh, if they come, they can still join us anyway. uh, My name is Alexander Stefan. I'm uh, here at the Machan Center uh, doing uh, a project on American culture, Americanization, anti-Americanism in various parts of the world. Uh, Just a brief word of thanks to the Office of International Affairs that has helped during the last... uh, year, or this academic year, uh, to um, organize and uh, also fund a number of events. Uh, As part of this project, we have had conferences on Western Europe, um, on Russia, on the Middle East, on the Far East, um, on Latin America, and I'm very happy that today we can uh, do something uh, together with the Center for African Studies uh, on Africa. Um, This series uh, ends with this event today, Uh, however it will have a follow-up if you're interested in these topics and issues. Uh, in uh, about a year and a half it'll be quite a lead time Uh, I'm hoping to bring together so to speak the best of all of those presentations and conferences in the sense of people both and ideas and of course add to the people and ideas uh, who uh, we already experienced here by uh, organizing a conference on American culture, anti-Americanism in different regions of the developing world since we did Europe already it's going to be the rest of the world uh, outside of Europe. Um, so today it's going to be Africa as a topic and the director of the Center for African Studies will do the introduction of the speaker. Thank you. Okay,
1: uh, good afternoon. Uh, my name is Ahmed Sikenga. I'm the director of the Center for African Studies here at the Ohio State University and it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Professor James Campbell, who is a professor of uh, African American Civilization, Africana Studies, and History at Brown University. Uh, Professor Campbell's research focuses on African-American uh, and Black Atlantic culture and history. Uh, his book, Songs of Zion, the African Methodist Episcopal Church in the United States and South Africa, won two awards, the organization of the American historians Frederick Jackson's Turner Prize, as well as the Carl Sandenberg Literary Award for Nonfiction. Uh, Professor Campbell is also a research fellow at the Center for Pan-African Studies, uh, at Accra, Ghana, as well as the African Studies Institute at the University of Witwatersrand in South Africa. Uh, he is also the chair of Brown University's Steering Committee on Slavery and Justice, which was uh, mandated to investigate uh, Brown's university link with uh, historical links with slavery. Uh, today he will talk about uh, the title of his talk, is Americans Are Coming, The Politics of American Culture in the New South Africa. Please join me in welcoming Professor Kahn.
2: Thank you so much for having me. Um, an American arriving in South Africa today can scarcely be helped, uh, can scarcely help but be struck by how familiar it all seems. South Africans, black and white, drink Coca-Cola. They eat at KFC. They spend exorbitant sums on Nike sportswear. They shop in sprawling suburban malls modeled on American prototypes often designed by American architectural firms offering a dizzying array of American commodities. The local cineplexes carry the latest Hollywood blockbusters, while television, which the apartheid regime prohibited until 1976, serves up an endless stream of American commercial programs. The same process is evident in the realm of politics. While South Africa's history as a British colony is reflected in the country's parliamentary system, many of the controversial political issues debated in the new South Africa, judicial review, minority rights, affirmative action, revolve around concepts appropriated, or some might say misappropriated, from American political discourse. One could multiply examples almost indefinitely, indefinitely, but the point's clear. Over the course of the 20th century, the United States has displaced Great Britain as South Africa's political, economic, and cultural metropole. And the object of the project I'm working on now is to try to figure out how that happened. Before proceeding, let me offer a few qualifications and anticipate a few objections. To highlight the American presence is not to imply that the United States is the sole or necessarily the most important foreign influence on South Africa, nor is it to imply that American influence is spread somehow unevenly or seamlessly across the country as a whole. On the contrary, in a society as riven by racial, class, ethnic, and generational cleavages of South Africa, the process of what I'm calling Americanization has inevitably been uneven, contingent, and contested. Manifestly, U.S. influence has been most marked in urban areas, preeminently in Johannesburg, which is in more than a figurative sense a product of American inspiration and invention. Yet America has also permeated the plot lot, from the ubiquitous Ford trucks, or what were once the ubiquitous Ford trucks, on Highfeld Farms to the dog-eared copies of Reader's Digest and National Geographic that you still find sitting in the doctor's office. Americanization has also often assumed a generational character, with young South Africans, black and white, appropriating American music, fashion, even slang, as a means to distinguish themselves from their more conservative, more Anglophone elders. Last but not least, this process has been distinctly racialized. While both black and white South Africans have proved extraordinarily receptive to American culture, they've typically embraced different aspects of it while entertaining profoundly different ideas about the nature and relevance of American experience to their own. Indeed, part of the interest of a project like this lies precisely in that interplay of black and white versions of America. Even when you find unequivocal evidence of American influence on a given group or groups, you need to be careful drawing conclusions. The great popularity of American Western films in post-war South Africa, for example, among both black and white audiences... It's plainly a significant datum, but it tells tells us nothing in itself about the mechanisms by which those movies found their way to South Africa or what the people in the audience made of them. The same might be said of shopping malls, the vogue for Tuskegee-style industrial education in the early 20th century, or the impact of the Cosby show, which had the bizarre distinction during the twilight of apartheid of being the highest-rated show on the South African Broadcasting Corporation. They took it off, actually, I think, when uh, Bill Cosby had grandchildren on the show and named them Winnie and uh, Nelson. Um, That sort of persuaded the censors that they shouldn't allow it. In short, Americanization involves processes of reception, of selection and reinterpretation, as well as of transmission. While the vast differences in national size and power have often made it difficult for South Africans to resist American penetration, it would be misleading to portray them as merely hapless victims of American cultural imperialism. Often, they have actively sought out American goods, ideas, and images, grafting them onto their own experiences to produce new ways of understanding and acting upon their worlds. So one of the chief challenges of a project like this, and this will be true not only of South Africa, but of all of the projects um, in the broader uh, project of which this is a part, is to do justice to those myriad moments of refashioning without succumbing to the simplifications of its all-cultural imperialism on one hand or of unfettered agency on the other. In today's brave new world of globalization, Marx's famous dictum is more pertinent than ever. People make their own history, but not exactly as they choose. One last potential objection. Why pick on South Africa? When Americanization is so obviously a global phenomenon. I mean, there's a poster right here of, I assume, of the Brandenburg Gates with the Golden Arches superimposed on top. What country today is not plagued by generica America? Coca Cola, Nike, CNN, Baywatch, and so forth. Fair point. But even if one concedes that the historical particularities of the process in different societies are worthy of close analysis. As it happened, South Africa is something of a special case. In few, if any, societies in the world has the process of Americanization been going on so long. In few has it been so thoroughgoing or of such central historical significance. To take just one example, when the 1939 Mixed Marriages Commission convened, a commission that would become the, the judicial justification for the uh, population registration and mixed marriages acts of apartheid, One of the first things that researchers did was send a consular official here in the United States to the Library of Congress to see how the Americans legislated mixed marriages. At the time, just for the record, there were over 100 anti-miscegenation statutes on state books in the United States, 37 states in all. The authority of American experience was similarly invoked in dozens of other arenas in the elaboration of segregation, in the creation of radio and television broadcasting, which I'll talk about today, and suburbanization, advertising, the cultivation of popular tastes in music, dress, interior decoration, and so forth. All of which is to say that the Americanization of South Africa is not just a figment of the historian's imagination, nor just another case of America, American culture abroad. It is a deeply rooted, complex, contested historical process with profound significance for South Africa's past, present, and future. What I'd like to talk about today is to take just one piece of this. I want to talk about television. I want to look at two mo- two moments. The first, the belated arrival of television in South Africa in 1976. Most people are shocked when you tell them South Africa did not have television until 1976. It did not have it because the architects of the apartheid regime believed And I think you could make a case that they were right, that it would be corrosive of apartheid, that it was bad for people, that it was a great homogenizer, uh, and that in a society that was predicated on cultivating notions of distinct communities or ethnic and racial identities, television was a bad idea. Um, I'll talk a little bit about why in 1976 they finally relented. I'm going to talk about what happened to television then. And I'm going to then turn to the period in the 1990s following the collapse of apartheid and the rise of majority rule when quite unwittingly policymakers engaged in many of the same debates that their apartheid predecessors had engaged in a generation before. What's striking is how at both of those moments it was the explicit goal of policymakers to prevent the proliferation of American-style commercial programming. And yet in both cases... This is exactly what you've got. Now, because I'm a historian, I'm going to start by going backwards. I want to look at another period as well. The beginnings of radio broadcasting. A period in the 1920s and 30s. Precisely because the arrival of television was so belated, radio has had a far more dramatic and enduring impact on broadcast culture in South Africa than in the United States. Briefly, in the 1920s, as radio broadcasting was developing, there were two different models of how you did it. One, associated with Britain and embodied by the BBC, was to use radio broadcasting as a public, non-commercial service. The other, of course, was the United States, where you basically use radio to sell soap. South Africa, after a brief period of uncertainty, followed the British model. Now, it's tempting to say that Britain and America had different cultures of radio because we all know, you know, Americans can't sit still through all of these boring documentaries and, uh, you know, Americans want livelier music and what have you. There's actually, I think, technological and geographical explanations for why Britain and the United States developed different radio cultures. In Britain, it's small. So radio is actually broadcast through transmitters, and you only needed a couple to cover the entire (laughs) island. Consequently, radio became a public utility. And like all public utilities, costs of it were borne by the user. So just like the state was providing electricity off its national grid, it was providing radio out of its national transmitters, and the people who who used the utility, the listeners in the case of radio, paid for it through licensing fees, paid an annual license. The United States tried transmitters, but it's too big. They tried super transmitters, they tried relay stations, but ultimately what it, what the first national networks for radio broadcasting actually became, they ran on telephone lines. Now, telephone lines were owned by AT&T. It was very expensive, first of all, to broadcast along telephone lines. And in telephones, unlike the public utility model, the people who paid were the people who made the call. In this case, the broadcaster. So what it meant was a very different understanding of what broadcasting would be. It also meant that you needed to generate revenue. And as a result, radio, quite quickly in the United States, began to accept commercial sponsorship. It didn't do so without controversy. In the 1920s, as today, in some quarters, everybody complained about advertising. I'm not sure actually we do anymore. By the end of the 1920s, a broad political coalition had emerged to denounce the commercialization of the airway. Advancing arguments that would continue to resound through the century, they complained that radio had become a wasteland of jingles and junk, that the moral fiber of the nation was being sapped, that good music and drama was being drowned out by the merely popular, that an unparalleled opportunity to uplift and enrich American culture was being squandered. This pressure was substantial enough to force politicians and industry officials to reserve certain frequencies for educational broadcasting. But such such broadcasts like public television today were typically confined to the least accessible frequencies and forever starved of funds. In retrospect, these early advocates of public broadcasting were foiled by that farrago of democratic populism and market logic that remains one of the hallmarks of American popular culture. We give people what they want. Who are these elitists to tell us? Put put all this in quotation marks, please. Who are these elitists to tell us what people should see? Significantly, radio industry representatives dubbed the commercial arrangement that they developed the American system. Initially, only a minority of shows were sponsored, and even these relied on unobtrusive, indirect ads in the belief that anything too overt would antagonize listeners. Shows typically had one sponsor whose name might be mentioned only twice. Once at the beginning of the show, welcome to the New York Edison Hour, and once again at the end. In short order, however, advertisers began directly promoting specific products and even interrupting shows with so called spot ads. In time, the program itself, quite quickly, became subordinated to the advertisement, with entire shows existing solely as vehicles to huck products. And I mean this in the most literal way. Many of radio's most popular shows in the 1920s were produced not by the networks, but by the advertising agencies who tailored the programs in the interests of particular clients. A similar system actually was tried in early American television, but was torpedoed by the notorious quiz show scandal. The so-called American system of commercial broadcasting imparted to U.S. radio shows a specific character and pace. Aimed at, as they were at a national market, shows required mass appeal. Programs that required specialized knowledge, that spoke only of local concerns, that might potentially bore or offend certain numbers of listeners, would not find their way into the National Broadcasting Corporation radio program. Not surprisingly... Firms that chose to advertise on the radio were those that aimed at broad national markets, typically the market for inexpensive consumables—candy, soap, hence the origins of the term "soap opera," cookies, batteries, ginger ale, and so forth. Now, given that consumers of such brands had a choice of, of such goods, had a choice of many brands, most of which are really not that different, advertisers worked mightily to endow their particular brand of soap or shaving cream with associations of pleasure, lightness, and ease. And not surprisingly, they strove to impart that same tone to the programs they sponsor. The preponderance of comedy in early American radio, later in television. The preference for light over serious music. The rapid pace of skits and musical selections. The abhorrence of dead air, as they called it. All this grew from the commercial logic of the American system. And all would be faithfully carried into network television. Vaudeville stars such as Eddie Cantor received a new lease on life in radio, which provided a perfect forum for their frenetic, rapid-style comedy. Indeed, several of these aging Vaudevillians would later find their way onto network television. Needless to say, radio programming in Britain could not have been more different. Compared to American broadcasting, BBC Radio and BBC Television were positively tortoise-like. While the difference was related primarily, I'm suggesting, in the different structures of the media, the British system also doubtless owed a great deal to the perdurability of the British class system, which enabled BBC officials unblushingly to declare that they gave the people what they needed, not what they wanted. As Lord Raith, the imposing chairman of the British Broadcasting Corporation, was fond of saying, radio represented, quote, the royal road to enlightenment and responsibility. I go on so about this because the origins of broadcasting in South Africa are largely a story of a debate between these two models. A debate that was ultimately resolved only in 1934 with the creation of the South African Broadcasting Corporation. That corporation was born of a government commission appointed a year before by Prime Minister J.B.M. Herzog of the National Party The commissioner he appointed significantly was Lord Wraith, the recently retired chairman of the British Broadcasting Corporation and the world's leading scourge of commercial broadcasting. The son of a Scots Presbyterian minister, Wraith was courtly but also notoriously moralistic, even puritanical, qualities that had irritated many of his adversaries in Britain but which further recommended him to his fellow Calvinist, Prime Minister Herzog. The Wraith report is an extraordinary document the bulk of it focused on programming, elaborating the BBC vision of public non-commercial radio. While conceding the importance of, quote, entertainment and the need periodically to probe listeners' tastes, Wraith stressed the importance of exposing listeners only to the best, most edifying shows. He was distinctly unmoved by arguments about what he called popular demand, adding, arguing, quote, this is a great quote, a supply of good things well presented will create the demand for them. On the subject of commercial advertisements, he was scathing. Among the things which radio does not need, he declared, is the use of a transmitter for the pushing of one's wares. Wraith also stressed the importance of the new medium in terms of nation building. And this would be something that would be unwittingly echoed in the history of television. Stressing that radio represented the dynamic, this is again a quote, the dynamic bridging of unrelated persons into relation, the creation of a nation. Now, he was, what he had in mind as he said this was whites, chiefly the two white communities, of South, the white communities of South Africa, Afrikaners, and Englishmen. The Wraith Report more or less ignored Africans who were not seen as consumers of radio. This was the broadcasting system that largely prevailed in South Africa when television made its arrival belatedly in 1976. I'd have to qualify that in a longer version of this. There is the opening of an FM band which allows some commercials. There's a big scandal, in fact, on FM radio where they're broadcasting Handel's Messiah and they interrupt it for a commercial and all sorts of complaints pour into the SABC. Funding continues to be basically through licensing, however. Um, And when television came, this was the model to which it was supposed to conform. All of the hallmarks of SABC radio, state ownership, the, the control of a supposedly impartial board of governors, revenues generated chiefly from listener license fees rather than from commercial advertising, the emphasis on locally produced edifying entertainment, all of those features of radio were carried or were tempted to be carried into television. I've mentioned briefly some of the reasons why South African authorities under the apartheid regime labored to keep television out. Let me only say very briefly why they eventually relented and let it in. The timing has something to do with the moon landing, which were the first great moment in which the entire world watched something happen simultaneously but you didn't watch it if you were in South Africa. They had to wait till the newsreels of the next week. There were 22 countries in Africa in which the moon landing was watched. South Africa was not one, and that was humiliating to a nation which constantly was stressing its superiority and more sophisticated civilization over the quote unquote rest of Africa. At the same time, there was a rise of a more cosmopolitan Afrikaner bourgeoisie. In some sense, the fruits of the success of the apartheid project, which was deliberately designed as a kind of affirmative action program to promote the emergence of this corner bourgeoisie. And they increasingly found the absence of television embarrassing. This did not mean, however, that the nationalists were prepared to hand over the keys of the kingdom to what the minister of posts and telegraphs, the guy responsible for this, referred to as, I'm not making this up, the devil in the black box. The 1971 Meyer Commission, whose recommendations were enacted virtually intact by Parliament, laid out a slow five-year preparation period, as well as a host of safeguards to ensure that the television service that eventually emerged in South Africa would be appropriate to what they euphemistically called South Africa's distinctive way of life. It would be non-commercial, using licensing fees. It would be directed at white South Africans and ignore Africans, although there were vague plans for later phase two. There would be no linguistic mixing. There would be local content. In fact, during the five-year period, they went crazy producing local documentaries on everything you could imagine in order to have something to fill up the air. That foreign content which they bought, they acquired mostly from the BBC or tonier American programs, such as Alexander Cook's America series, they did buy a few American uh, situation comedies, but they were the tamer ones. In fact, this is a true story. The first, I mean, they they did test broadcasts of an hour a night for six months. But when the first sort of official dedication of the service happened, the first thing that was on was the Bob Newhart show, followed by uh, speech by Prime Minister John Forster, dedicating the new service. And if you have any mental image of John Forster, smug arrogant, casually thuggish. The juxtaposition is just too rich. Bob Newhart would have done a great, great John Foster. If the years before 1976, then, uh, I mean, so if the years leading up to 1976 reflected this kind of master plan to produce a, a television system appropriate for South Africa, one which would screen out commercialism and this whole American torrent of goods and corrosion of difference in homogeneity. I mean, in fact, there's a, this is inside but you know, there are longer debates about this in South Africa, particularly with an Afrikaner nationalism. And it takes place not only over television and radio, but about Hollywood movies. There's a great fear about this American stuff that's going to come in, in part because it's got racial scripts that might be disruptive of the racial scripts they're trying to promulgate under apartheid. The first, in fact, the first film banned in South Africa is is a uh, newsreel of the Jack Johnson-Jim Jeffries fight of 1913, which is interesting because that's also the first film banned in the United States, and for the same reason authorities don't want black people watching movies of a black people beating the crap out of a white guy. In any event, so this great plan, just to finish that, that parenthesis, they even in fact coin a word for it, Afrikaans neologism, the culture of the movies, for this kind of image of junk, of commodities, of commerce, without, that is corrosive of those divinely ordered Differences between communities, which are central to the concept of apartheid. Well, so after five years of planning to ensure that they would create a distinctive uh, television system, it almost immediately came apart. There were a number of unanticipated problems. The most devastating came early in 1974 when Equity, the British Entertainment Union, announced a boycott against South Africa effectively stopping the SABC from licensing British television programs. Um, While African internationalists had been reticent on the matter, there's no question that they anticipated purchasing the majority of what overseas programming they were required to purchase just to fill up the hours with the BBC rather than with American products. And the ban from equity forced them increasingly to look to American television companies. Supporting, of course, needless to say, Americans had fewer scruples about licensing their products in apartheid South Africa. I interviewed the guy who at the time was the director of the SABC, and he talked about warning British colleagues that if the BBC allowed this to happen, that South African audiences would never again be interested in British products. That Once they had become accustomed to the accelerated pace and broad humor of American television shows, And basically, once they learned to laugh at American jokes rather than British jokes, they would never go back. And this would prove prophetic. The growing dominance of American commercial programming was also abetted in unexpected ways by the mounting political crisis in South Africa. 1976, of course, is not only the year that begins television, it's also the year of the Soweto uprising and the beginning of a deepening political domestic crisis over apartheid. This had several effects on the SABC. On the one hand, the network became increasingly nakedly a propaganda arm of the national party government. Yet at the same time, this process also accelerated the drift towards American commercial programming. As the corporation's 1977 annual report conceded, these were, quote, stormy times for South Africa. In an era of plummeting national morale, it was essential that television, quote, radiate a spirit of optimism and confidence in the future, that it balanced the realistic approach with more hopeful fare. And what could be more hopeful, not to say escapist, than American commercial television, where evil was personified and routinely mastered, where white people enjoyed the accoutrements of material success without the gnawing fear and anxiety that was increasing the lot increasingly the lot of white South Africans. It is no coincidence that the first true television sensations in South Africa were rich man-poor man. Poor man which aired in 1978, and Doubts, which arrived a year later. Shows which offered not only starkly drawn characters and compelling storylines, but also a glimpse of an America of extraordinary glamour and material comfort. Visions of the American good life, of course, had long been appealing to white and to many black South Africans, steeped as they were in Hollywood movies, but the need for such images had grown in the late 1970s and early 80s as whites reeled from the effects of domestic upheaval and international opprobrium. In fact, it's interesting, I've gone through the annual reports of the SABC, and they're constantly trumpeting domestic production, local content on their programs. But every year, it's going down. And after 1980, they don't mention it anymore, which is a telling omission. Once the taste for American commercial television had taken root, a relentless economic logic takes over, Whatever the merits, their unrivaled production values or the dismal predictability of plots, American television shows have another great virtue. They're cheap, at least if you're living overseas. Those who ponder the sources of American popular culture's global dominance often need look no further than the bottom line. Blessed with a vast, well-integrated, affluent national market, American producers of Movies, music, films, and television shows can confidently expect to recoup the costs of production of even the most extravagant productions from domestic sales and rentals. At least until recently, that left the overseas market as gravy. And what American media companies typically would do is recoup all of their costs and their profits from the domestic market and then simply dump these products through cheap licensing fees overseas. So what happens in the 1980s in South Africa is the SABC finds that these American television programs are vastly cheaper than trying to produce a program locally. In the early 1980s, the gearing ratio is about four to one. It costs about four times more per minute to have a South African program than simply to rent one from the United States and one that has higher production values and people are becoming accustomed to see. By the late 1980s, that gearing ratio is 8 to 1. If it involves any shooting outside or something, God forbid, like a car wreck, the gearing ratio can quickly become 20 or 30 times more per minute. What do you do? Well, one solution is you increasingly buy American television programming. Another is that you increasingly relent and accept... Advertising. The very first ad I mean initially there's very tight restrictions on how much they'll admit I think it's four percent can be advertising. Um, the very first ad appears in late 18, 1978 and it's in fact an ad for frozen food, which is perfect because that's an American invention which reflects American virtues of speed and convenience and standardization. By the time I first arrived in South Africa in 1985, seems a long time ago now, the battle had more or less been lost. Though the SABC's Station One continued to try to sort of uh, remain purportedly the kind of good SABC, they ran a TV 4 another channel that was made up almost entirely of American commercial programs. Still sometimes dubbed into Afrikaans, several of which were considered too risque to air on TV One. What Afrikaans I speak, I learned chiefly by watching Mistad in Miami, Miami Vice. That show was, of course, testimony to how far the SABC had come, or depending on your point of view, fallen in just a few short years. All the historical bogeys of South African censors, technique of crime, sexual suggestiveness, race mixing, there was a black and white detective team at the part of the show, even, my lord, interracial kissing, aired weekly. The show was also a veritable orgy of conspicuous consumption, projecting an America of elegant yachts and fast cars piloted by men wearing gold chains, designer sunglasses, and those Italian sport coats with the short sleeves. Remember those? The devil in the black box indeed. Indeed. Well, the undoing of the SABC culminated then in February 1990 when Nelson Mandela strolled out of Victor Verster prison. The next few years saw a difficult, intractable, violent period of negotiation eventually culminating in 1994 with the country's first democratic election and Mandela's installation as state president. Not surprisingly, many opponents of apartheid wanted to uproot the SABC root and branch. Typically, their animus was directed at the news department, which they accused, quite rightly, of having shamelessly promoted the government line during the dark days of apartheid. But many were also determined to rescue the SABC from the swamp of commercialism into which it had sunk, to create a public broadcaster that would reflect South Africa's rich cultural diversity, while helping to unify and edify a nation riddled by conflict and ignorance. In essence, they called for exactly the kind of broadcaster envisioned by the founders of radio and later of television, though needless to say, they operated with a more inclusive conception of nation and a vastly more fluid concept of culture. Harkening back to the words of Lord Rife, they spoke of television as a tool of enlightenment, a vehicle of nation-building, that would connect South Africa's diverse population to its government and to one another. That idealistic vision was enshrined in the Independent Broadcasting Authority Act enacted by Parliament in 1993. The act enjoined the Independent Broadcasting Authority, and here again these are quotations, to protect the integrity and viability of public broadcasting services, to ensure that radio and television offered not only entertainment, but also education and information, to ensure that broadcasting services viewed collectively develop and protect a national and regional identity, culture, and character. Through 1994 and 1995, the SABC shouldered its new mandate. The corporation provided extensive, expensive, and relatively even-handed coverage of the 1994 election campaign. It offered thorough coverage of the agonizing, seemingly endless hearings of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and you better believe nobody wanted to advertise their product on that show. It produced new shows for children, as well as adult educational programs aimed at eliminating adult illiteracy and innumeracy. Overall, the proportion of locally produced programming reached levels not seen since the early 1980s, while the results were dismally predictable. By the end of 1995, the SABC was broke. At the insistence of the government, the corporation hired a firm of management consultants, appropriately enough an American firm, McKinsey & Associates. What is precisely in the McKinsey report, I cannot say because I have never read it. Despite the SABC's vaunted claims of transparency, the report has not been released to the public. It's possible, however, to piece together the report's contents based on the comments of those who who are familiar with it as well as on subsequent events, including the sacking of huge numbers of SABC employees because, as we know, in the 1990s, the first thing you did if you were a management consultant was tell corporations that they needed to right-size their workforces. The report's most obvious recommendation, however, was that the SABC needed to become a more commercially oriented broadcaster. The immediate result was a resurgence of American programming, especially on TV3, which became a bastion of American shows. Homicide, NYPD, Blue, Seinfeld. Though Seinfeld didn't take, interestingly enough, it was too Jewish. All broadcast in English, all aimed at capturing the white, relatively youthful audience so beloved of advertisers advertisers. In theory, South Africans still paid their television license fees. The Most frequent commercial you heard was pay your TV license. It's the right thing to do. But by that time, the total amount of revenue the SABC generated from license fees, according to its own figures, was 17 percent. And I think they were lying. I think it was even less. Other problems followed the arrival of satellite television which soon creamed off about 10% of the total audience, those who could afford the satellite dishes. But of course, those who could afford the satellite dishes were also the people that advertisers were most anxious to reach. In 1998, the SABC also faced for the first time a free-to-air rival. In keeping with its mandate to encourage growth and fair competition in the broadcasting industry, the IBA in 1998 accepted bids for a license to operate South Africa's first privately-owned free-to-air television station. After a rancorous competition and a long process of litigation, the license was awarded to ETV, a venture of a newly formed consortium called MIDI Television. Now, if you need persuading that the new South Africa is a very funny place, you need look no further than MIDI TV, whose chief shareholders included HCI, the investment arm of the Kasatu Workers' Union, and Time Warner, which owned a 20% stake in the venture. In keeping with its public interest mandate and in an effort to avoid giving the new channel an unfair advantage over the SABC, the IBA attached stringent conditions to the new license, including a commitment to broadcasting national news and a set proportion of locally produced programs, 10% of airtime at startup, growing to 30% by the end of the first year. Well, ETV went on stream. It immediately flouted the terms of its licensing agreement. Its opening lineup included no news programs, no local content, uh, setting off a vicious internecine battle with the Independent Broadcasting Authority. Just for the record, the lineup on ETV's first night of programming was Oprah, Friends, and Baywatch. Well, I don't want to end this talk so unhopefully. At risk of opening a can of worms, the new SABC has produced a substantial amount of good television programming. Documentaries on such subjects as gang gang culture on the Cape Flats or the history of African independent churches, a subject close to my own heart, have offered South African television viewers not only insight into previously neglected corners of their history, but a fundamentally different way of thinking about their different and shared cultures. If documentary programming in the old SABC was distinguished by its insistence on ethnic and linguistic purity, on the importance of cultural traditions, always distinct, always fixed, usually vanishing, much of the programming on the new SABC is characterized by its delight in bricolage, movement, mixture, the manifold ways in which South Africans, amidst all the madness, have created commonalities amidst difference. The same pattern is, is uh, obvious in some of the locally produced series. The most popular South African dramatic series in the late 1990s was the show Isidingo, a primetime soap opera set on a gold mine. The show had all the flaws of its American prototypes, but it also had a diverse set of characters, black as well as white, Afrikaners as well as English speakers, poor as well as rich, all interacting in complex human ways, at least by the standards of television. Dialogue in the show, freely mixed African languages with both Af- with English and Afrikaans, a kind of linguistic promiscuity that would have never been permitted under apartheid. Even the continuity announcers, typically blacks and whites together, mixed languages. Sometimes it's almost enough to give one hope. I have nothing to say in this talk about the question that probably most interests you as the question of spectatorship or to borrow a phrase from literary criticism reader response what do different people actually like how do they interpret particular shows having chattered on so long about broadcasting about transmission what what can I tell you about the infinitely more complicated problem of reception I do have a few thoughts on the subject chiefly from watching SABC Mistakes It's clear, for example, that people really do like to watch television in their home languages, though they are not nearly as prissy about it as apartheid social engineers imagine them to be. Not only do they accept the practice of linguistic mixing, but African audiences appear to prefer having white characters speak in English and Afrikaans, even in programs that are otherwise entirely in vernacular languages. Something about the spectacle of white South Africans speaking susutu or isiZulu just doesn't ring true for them. It's also abundantly clear that viewer tastes do not run along neat black-white lines, that other issues, culture, class, language, mediate taste. This should have been apparent to the SABC from the unexpected success of the Cosby Show among white viewers, but the network needs occasional reminding. One of the things that the SABC overseas buyers did in the 1990s was go out and buy as many African-American programs as they could get their hands on, mostly half-hour situation comedies, some of which never got past pilots, so we never saw them in this country, in the understandable belief that black viewers wanted to see shows with black casts and themes. To a certain extent, that assumption proved justified, yet many of those shows fared quite poorly especially among rural Africans. Doubtless, part of the problem is due to viewers' difficulty in understanding English, especially English that is accented, idiomatic, and delivered at the rapid-fire pace of the typical African-American comedy. Yet there seems to be more to it. One of the standard formulae of African-American situation comedies is to pose young people against their elders to show clever, quick-witted, sassy young people outwitting their parents, grandparents, and teachers. While the hijinks are usually in good fun, this formula appears to have very little appeal to rural Africans who continue to entertain deeply conservative notions about age and appropriate conduct between generations. On the other hand, the shows appear to have struck a distinct chord with an emergent African middle class whose members find in black American television shows as their predecessors found in American music and movies a powerful symbol of achievement and urbanity. Indeed, I'd go so far as to argue that the assimilation of African American styles and idioms represents today, as for most of the last century, one of the central themes in the continuing process of African middle class formation. I could offer more such snippets, but the problem remains. Even if we establish what programs aired, even if we establish precisely how many and which South Africans watched them, we still do not necessarily know what those people see or make out of the programs that they watch. Clearly, different viewers take different messages from shows. Clearly, these messages often bear little relationship to those that the makers of the shows intended As I'm sure you know, this is a very hot area in transnational cultural studies with scholars such as Stuart Hall and Montia Juara offering theories of what Juara, Juara has called resistant spectatorship. Proponents of such arguments may well object to a lot of what I've said here or at least to my tone which clearly betrays my discomfort with the preponderance of dismally formulaic American commercial programming on South African television. Why should we worry about what programs are broadcasting, broadcast if viewers ultimately interpret them to suit their own needs and interests anyway. I'm actually quite interested in this line of analysis and would welcome hearing questions and suggestions related to it. All I'd like to suggest right now in closing is that we oughtn't take that argument too far. Taken to extremes it seems to me to lead into a kind of analytical cul-de-sac in which scholars despair of ever saying anything meaningful about the meaning of this or that show or worse, into a kind of analytical free fire zone in which scholars will feel empowered to say virtually anything they want about a show's meaning, appeal, or impact in the certainty that nothing they say can ever be definitively rebutted. Such an approach also runs the danger of evacuating the study of cultures and cultural exchanges of politics, of power, of the specific historical and material circumstances that shape popular media. It isn't ordained that when you turn on a television, whether in Johannesburg or the West Bank, or anywhere else one could mention in the world, that what pops onto your screen is an American television show, any more than it is ordained that when you walk into a country store anywhere around the world, in the refrigerator, assuming there is one, is a (coughs) Coca-Cola. Understanding those specific histories and material circumstances, those trajectories of what I'm calling transmission, that's what I've tried to provide here today. To be sure, people are not ciphers. We select what we wish to consume. We interpret what we see in diverse ways. But these processes of selection and adaptation do not happen in historical vacuums. To return to Marx's dictum, people make their own televisions but not exactly as they choose. Thanks very much. Yeah, I think so. I mean, this is a really interesting um, point, which I couldn't get into in the talk. But one of the weird things that happens in 1976, during the 70s, when they're planning apartheid television, one of the things that they insist is that 50% of all shows are going to have to be on Afrikaans used to drive me crazy when I first got there and I didn't speak Afrikaans because the television shows, I mean, it only was on, it was only on from 7.30 to 11.30. That's all it was on every night, one channel. And you would turn it on and the first two hours were in Afrikaans and then it switched to the next two hours were in English. And then the next night it was the reverse. But that's what it was. And since they were increasingly dependent on buying foreign content, a lot of it in English, none of it in Afrikaans, one of the things that they had to do was they had to hire a huge number of translators, and what you got was literally I don't know five or six hundred people who made could make a living off of Connors, who could actually make a living doing dubbing for the SABC. And what those what it became was actually a form of cross subsidization from the state to a lot of artists, television producers movie makers and so forth, people who were getting a salary, working four hours, doing dubbing, and then also working in the SABC to make television programs, to make films, what have you. And so in a weird way, actually this thing became a way of cross-subsidizing, quite unintentionally, a whole stratum of television producers, movie makers and so forth. So some of the most creative stuff you got during this time, is sort of independent things, We're from Afrikaners, many of whom, you know, were living off the SABC, a government check, but making documentary films and whatever that were utterly antithetical to what the government was wanting. What happens then in the 80s as this system collapses, those people are out of work. And so increasingly, they have to leave the country. And so you get with Afrikaners and with English people, um, if you want to go into television or movies, you actually have to go abroad. A lot of those people have now been able to come back. And there is, I think, quite a robust culture in South Africa. And you do see on the SABC, I mean, you know, quite thoughtful, wonderful documentary programs, creative kinds of programs. There still is a vestigial commitment to edifying local fare, which in our country has almost been completely smashed. But that's my bias again, isn't it? Yes.
3: Well, I've noticed in the last seven years and I've been South Africa but the shows are getting more worldly. Like the South African shows were produced. And when I think down there in 1998, Generations is Best. So that everybody watched it. I, mean, I was living in a rural village actually laughing at the with the people that are there but the last year, about a year and a half ago a lot of shows that are mixed in little clinics have come up and um, in schools uh, a lot of uh, world based shows and I, so I think there has been some sort That's that type of
2: that we're seeing that's fascinating I haven't been back for a couple of years you've been back more recently I'm going in December and um, so a lot of this you know you, your impression would be more recent than mine that may be true. i would be particularly interested to see how, both in documentaries and in sort of locally produced dramas, the AIDS pandemic is being portrayed. Because, um, you know, here what you have is a is a you know a pandemic that is, in some ways, the central political challenge topic of the entire country. And yet, at least in the prime, you know, the state president's office. A kind of denial of the existence of the epidemic in a sense that this is all just part of an you know, external plot to discredit the sexuality of black people. And so I'll be very interested to see how that's getting mediated. And mediated is exactly the right word here. Isn't it? Please. I have a question about the theory
3: that you um, mentioned about what you and what Thing. I do have an anecdote about that. I took it at the end of the night which was a very small village north to me. And we sat in the room where the television was on the whole evening. And so, so, a lot of kids came. And I asked. And so, they said that was kids came to see me. And they even they came to see me because I was the first white person from North York, not walk the not a local British South Africa in the village and, and they wanted to see me. Most of the kids will give you when they have a song. So I ask my folks, yeah, why do they say this? Because I'm white and I'm different. So I ask my folks to ask the kids, do I look different than the white woman announcer on the television? And it's only just different because all the I are going look this all like the white woman and her the 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 connection. connection. So I was, I was wondering if um, whiteness in this uh, case is blindness because the television announcer is white and blonde and beautiful. And, and
2: this is the announcer, not the white person. Mm-hmm. It's interesting. In Most places in South Africa, even fairly remote rural areas, you wouldn't... I mean, it's unlike, say, when I've traveled in certain parts of West Africa where every kid within miles comes running to look at you. Um, you know, South Africa is... a uh, you know, has a more substantial white population, and most kids would have been more familiar with sort of seeing um, white faces. I mean, the kind of flippant answer to your question is that none of us really look like the people that we've seen on television. In fact, they're all probably computer-generated or genetically enhanced or what have you. I mean, a couple a couple things about this uh, question of resistance spectatorship or whatever you want to call it, and again, I, I hope you'll see my discomfort with it, you know, that... What it does is it, it basically turns consumption into a realm of freedom and that we are able to fashion ourselves through the products that we purchase, the ways we adorn our bodies, the things that we watch, um, you know, that we're able to create our identities that way and this should be celebrated and it's creative and so forth. And a big part of me says that's absolutely correct. But there's also there are also structures of power, material relations, that are really central in this. And again, Marx's dictum. I'm no I don't think of myself as a Marxist in any meaningful way, but it's a perfect expression of that. You know, we make our own history, but not exactly as we choose. I mean the first time I came upon this, I can remember reading an article, I don't remember where it was, it was a person had done spectatorship studies of television programming in the West Bank. And the big American show at that time was still Dallas. And I don't remember. I mean, it, it, this will embarrass me because I remember Jr.'s wife's name was Sue Ellen. And there's one episode where Sue Ellen runs off. She finally leaves J.R. and she runs off with another man. And this person, a big piece of the article was how this person had done this research. And to the Palestinian viewers, um, this made perfect sense because they have a, in their culture a practice in which if a woman is abused by her husband, she can return to her father. So that became the kind of cultural prism which they were interpreting Sue Ellen's actions and they had complete sympathy with it. And so this scholar, whoever it was, I don't remember, it's years ago, you know, saying, isn't this wonderful, right? They're not, you know, that our fears about cultural imperialism are groundless because in a sense, these people are creating out of these scripts, scripts of their own that are meaningful in their own context." And part of me says, yeah, sure, that's great. There are also are material relations that indicate that when you turn on your, I don't know if they have clickers, your clicker and your television screen comes on, that what shows up on that screen is Dallas rather than a show made on the West Bank. Right? And so, again, the, this need for both of these factors.
3: I, I was watching the show at the same time that the people who the record started the same television. And no, they do not watch it. But why we watch Dallas is honestly another world and this is what you want to watch on the free. Mm-hmm. But that woman is not white, she is an announcer. Mm-hmm. You do not want to see a white woman on the screen. You want to see an announcer. The same thing you want to see is paradise in Ballas in our own village. Yeah. I mean I don't say it's exactly going to go on over the day, but this is why Dallas is so popular.
2: But that again then is a very particular vision of what what Television does, right? And Lord knows we all have reasons to want to escape for an hour. and I'm sure that there are many, many more profound ones in the West Bank than what we face on our daily basis. But nonetheless, all I'm trying to call attention to is I'm not I'm not disputing that the ways in which people do make choices, and you know we we determine what we want to watch. There is, in some sense, a market. Um, you know, when a, when a television broadcaster, wherever it is, puts a television program on, you know, they're making analysis about what people will watch, which people will watch, what you can, how you can produce a bottom line based on, you know, what marketers will pay to have an advertisement and all of these sorts of things. Um, so, I, don't, I mean, I don't dispute this. I guess what I'm trying to suggest here, what I'm trying to get at, and what I think gets lost in a lot of these conversations Again, those material relations that dictate that when you turn on the when you turn on the television, when you go into your into your shopping mall and walk into a store, what's there? In other words, you're making choices, but you're making choices out of what set of options. And and those things, I think those are that's what I'm trying to get in the particular talk today is what some of those material relations are that bound our freedom. I'm not trying to take us back then into a day of cultural imperialism and insofar as there's a kind of censorious tone in my talk, I should probably apologize for it. But I do think that um, that we that you know the processes of transmission are really critical if we're going to do transnational cultural studies in a meaningful way. You
0: you set up in your talk a you the British model of broadcasting and the American model of broadcasting were very different. Uh, with the British one uh, being state organized, uh, driven by an elite, uh, financed by the taxpayers, essentially. Uh, with the American one more democratic, if you want to use this term, available to everybody and driven by commercial interests. Now, I can see that in the uh, broadcasting area, we have to be playing television, uh, the American model would be victorious very easily because um, that's an area where you can reach a large number of people out there. So people to advertisers to penetrate that system um, and to push out, so to speak, the government at the high culture. In other segments of the culture, there's a little bit harder. And nobody would put a soap ad into, let's say, the break of an opera or a theater play so. There's not advertising. So, my question would be if you go outside of television and radio in South Africa, uh, are there segments of uh, culture that are still following more the European model that seems to be still a blend of commercial and taxpayer supported, government supported, government controlled culture? Uh, is there a state financed theater, uh, museum system,
3: uh, concert system, music system, and so on?
0: Yeah, I mean,
2: some of that's actually tied in with, with the history of the SABC. There was always a South African uh, symphony orchestra, but part of what subsidized it was the South African Broadcasting Corporation. And, you know, and and, um, and in fact, there was a the dominant member of the South SABC board for about 15 years was a woman named Mimi Kutzer, who was a frustrated opera singer, and so she was always, you know, we need more classical music, and so South Africans were getting classical music, even though in terms of popular tastes from the 40s on, and jazz, for example, is enormously popular in South Africa, and yet you'd never heard it on SABC radio. Um, but yeah, there, you know, there's this, the there's this state orchestra, and, and similarly performances, theatrical performances, when SABC television first comes on, they, you know, these would be filmed and broadcast, you know, so things like that. Part of, I mean, um, this notion of a state continuing to provide edifying fare, right? Um, two sort of aspects of that. For the most part, that, at least the old style version of that, it has fallen on extremely hard times. Uh, you know, you have severe budget shortfalls. The kind of, you know, the structural, essentially, South Africa is going through a structural adjustment program. I mean, you know, it's one of the great historical ironies that this last great democratic revolution took place at the same moment of the eclipse of the Cold War and the onset of a kind of new, you know, hegemonic global paradigm about globalization. And so the, the ANC, when it came to power, didn't do what other African independent nations did. I mean, it, it didn't raise taxes. It didn't impose restrictions on repatriation of profits uh, it, in a whole variety of ways, tried to play ball with the global uh, economic system, neoliberal economic system coming out of the United States. And so subsidizing things like this quickly, I think, fell by the wayside. But the SABC does retain a vestigial commitment, more than a vestigial commitment, to this notion that television is not purely a commercial terrain and that it, uh, you know, is is a medium that should edify and it has a central role to play in nation building. And so, you know, you do... You know, you still will see good documentary television shows on the South African Broadcasting Corporation. They're not going to be about, you know, a performance of a Wagner opera anymore. They they may well be about a sort of rural health clinic where primary care physicians are battling an AIDS epidemic, things like that. You also find shorts,
3: three or four minute
2: shorts. Some of which are brilliant, huh? Yeah, in
3: between shows that are. For that
2: purpose, for yeah, see, yes, you know, I don't know. I mean, part of what was always interesting to me about this, too, with in South Africa was, you know, we in this country, you know, things start and end at the top of the hour or the bottom of the hour. But what that means is, you know, that the actual, the program you produce, because I don't know what it is, 47 minutes, or if it's a ch- you know, a children's cartoon on Saturday morning, it might be only 18 minutes because the other 12 minutes are full of commercials, right? And there's still, I don't know what the official policies are, but there are still are some restrictions on the percentage of time that can be devoted to advertising on SABC television. And one of the things that means is that if you're buying a kind of overseas show that runs twenty two minutes and you can only have a certain number of minutes yourself, you've got you know three, four minutes per half hour to fill up. Some of that's done through continuity announcers, which they still have. You know, the, we go to our hosts in the studio, will tell us what's coming up next. Right? But they also will throw in these little sort of short films and documentaries.